Welcome to Criminal Perspective. I'm Chris. I'm Andrew. And we are now with Crawl Space Media. Uh, this was uh, something that we've had in the works for a while, and we are now uh, presented by Crawl Space, and it's a lovely thing. Without Tim and Lance at Crawl Space, this podcast wouldn't exist. I did their show a little while back, and uh, I had such a good experience, and they urged me to do something like this, and and I never considered it, and I really started to consider it after their urging. Then I got a hold of Andrew, who I've known for quite a while, and we decided to pull the trigger and make this happen. So um, if you're listening for the first time, thank you for checking us out. And if uh, you're listening again, uh, thank you for the continued support. Andrew and myself have been corresponding and interviewing inmates for the past 10 years individually. And uh, we, we, we've we learned quite a bit about them over the years. And that's what this podcast focuses on. We're not, we're not trying to find missing people. We're not investigators. Uh, we're not reciting cases that, that spook us. Um, we know a lot about these criminals and we're trying to share uh, some of our insight and experience. So sometimes we'll bring the criminals directly to you uh, through phone interviews. Other times we'll have experts on, we'll have psychologists, psychiatrists in the field of forensics. We will have notable people from the true crime world. And uh, it's all around about criminals. That's that's our focus here. So if you're not into learning about criminal behavior, their how they tick and all that, then this might not be for you uh, because we go pretty in-depth sometimes with it. This first episode uh, we recorded back in February. Um, when Andrew and I started this, we really didn't think anybody would listen. So we we did this on a, a cell phone and a and a, a laptop. And the quality really shows. We've kind of stepped our game up a bit since then. So, uh, yeah, this first episode was one that we recorded back in February about an inmate that I used to correspond with named John Lawrence Miller. And uh, John Lawrence Miller has been in prison for quite some time. As a juvenile, he murdered an infant child and was charged as an adult. After he did that sentence, he was paroled and he murdered his parents not long after his parole and was sent back to prison, was actually sent to death row. And then uh, the death penalty was abolished and uh, he ended up serving life without parole, which he is currently doing now in California. He sent me a 16 page letter that I thought was pretty intriguing about his transformation from essentially being a psychopath to a emotionally functioning and caring individual. And uh, the content always kind of stuck with me and made me wonder because it was very out of the norm from what we usually hear. Andrew and I usually hear very superficial, oh yeah, I've I've changed and I I've seen the I've seen the wrong that I've done and I found God and I'm sure you've seen a lot of that, Andrew. I mean it's it's a lot easier and more convenient when you get to prison to think about what you've done and to feel sorry whether you mean it or not, especially to hide I'm not gonna say hide behind something like religion, but to grasp onto something to project your guilt you know to like normalize it like a lot of these guys are like i mean it, it definitely helps your uh, parole hearings yeah but john john miller's letter really stuck out to me because he explained step by step about how he transformed himself and it wasn't as simple as i found god and and i changed it was you know he had a very in-depth way of transformation that that took some time and and he he explained it 
quite thoroughly. So we really, in this first episode, we dug into that quite a bit and we, we analyzed it a little bit and uh, we, we researched the science behind it a bit to try and figure out if this is a possibility that he really could have genuinely changed himself um, or if he's just kind of mimicking the the behaviors of of what he wants to be um and so it's it's pretty interesting con content so uh let's go ahead and jump to that and uh again thank you for checking us out and we're happy to be on crawlspace media now and uh here is the first episode that we recorded about john miller basically this one's going to be about a murderer that I had contact with several years ago named John Lawrence Miller. And why this is so interesting is John Miller is essentially a psychopath, but he sent me a 16 page letter about his personal transformation to being able to be an empathetic and emotionally functional individual from someone who just absolutely fucking was not. So I read this and I always found it interesting and I dug into the science of it a, a bit and I found out that there is some basis. So this could be genuine, which is interesting because people always say psychopaths are biologically incapable of empathy and that might not be the case. And we're going to get into that. So but first we're going to talk about John Miller and we're going to talk about his crimes and we're going to get into his account of his transformation, and then we're going to touch on the science of it all. Basically what happened in John Miller's case is that John Miller, when he was 15, what year is that, 1957? 1957 when the crime occurred? The the very first one where he beat the 22-month-old to death? Right. So in 1957, he snuck into his neighbor's house, and there's a 22-month-old baby asleep in their crib. Laura Wetzel. Miller snuck into the house and beat the child to death. And he did this because he wanted to see what it felt like. He was completely heartless about it. Miller ended up going to juvenile detention and was in there for 17 years, I believe, and was judged to be rehabilitated and was released. Two months after he got out of prison, he killed his parents and that was on October 23rd what year was that that was 1975 75 75 and it's now 2019 and he's 72 all right he's old he's he's definitely an old dude he was he was pretty gnarly he didn't give a fuck about anybody and he had some problems and he spent most of his life in incarceration uh, eventually finding himself on death row we ran a Twitter poll, like the scientists that we are. We do love science. So we asked on Twitter, can a psychopathic murderer learn to become emotionally functional and empathetic? 79% of people said no. This is with 425 votes. 21% said yes. So not a lot of people can think that that can change. And a lot of people subscribe to the age-old uh, thing that psychopaths biologically cannot feel empathy. We're going to jump into this and there's going to be some interpretation here. There's no set conclusion. So there's, we'll, we'll get into all this. So let's, let's jump into John Miller's 
Now that we know his crimes and what he's done and how bad he was, let's jump into his transformation. So this is the letter I got from him back in 2012. Basically, he talks about hitting death row in 1976 and the guards yelling out dead man walking and fucking with him. It's kind of a outdated tradition, he calls it. A particular guard yelling at the general population prisoners ahead clearly enjoying what they were doing showing off that you know they got a new guy they're gonna kill and he's he said the guard was just generally being a jerk so a few years earlier the california supreme court overturned the state's death penalty law thus this current death penalty law had been specifically written to comply with the top court's prior constitutional objections as such it was good law quote unquote so there's nothing reversible here. His execution in San Quentin's gas chamber, or as it's called the green room, was a certainty at this point. Objectively, he says, I had no problem with that. Not because I bought into society's quote unquote just punishment, although I didn't disagree with that, but because since my entire life had been dysfunctional and I never really fit in, it was time, indeed past time, for me to be put down, which is that's interesting reading someone's account of their own their own inevitable death. That's pretty surreal reading that. So he says subjectively he lamented that dysfunctionality, that that not fitting in and that he hadn't been born to parents who wanted him, which would explain why he murdered his parents. He says, yeah, at that point in my life, I regrettably cared more about poor me than anyone else, including those whom I'd in turn victimized. So that's usually, we deal with a lot of psychopaths. Right. It sounds like he blamed everybody else for his problems. And at the end of it, he kind of maybe realized or it sunk in that he was responsible for everything and it wasn't other people's fault. Yeah. And that's, that's not, you know, something we see a lot with those types of criminals, would you say? Yeah, especially manipulative and controlling people, they'll never admit they're wrong. But he says that his parents had been little people in life, existing in the background of life rather than actually living it. Uh, They were friendless, they cared about no one else, and their bond was based upon merely being two alike nobodies who'd found each other, which is pretty interesting. I it's It's hard to say if this is his resentment towards them coming out or if he's just being genuine here i mean only he knows but you know you kind of have to look in both directions children were to be seen but not heard it was just my older sister and i and while we were fed and clothed there were no hugs no playing with us no conversation no laughter etc my sister adapted by becoming like them, something which my hyperactivity, a condition not yet recognized back in the 1940s and 50s, even today as an old man, I still have a reverse reaction to stimulants such as coffee, precluded my being able to do. So he was different biologically from his family. So that probably made him you know, feel a bit outcasted from the jumps naturally in in his natural environment, you know, being around these people if they are how he describes them to be. So he says here that his overactivity and his impulsivity brought on parental abuse, physical, mental, and emotional. 
which was all the more because of his impaired ability to learn. So he was set up pretty shitty and dealt a shitty hand, so he says here. Unable to effectively concentrate and think clearly, I was a poor student, he says. He flunked virtually every class, every grade in junior high. To the next grade level, he was promoted based solely on his age. His parents, both having completed high school, never once tried to tutor him. He was the public school's problem. He's acknowledging that everything is chaos for him. This is, yeah, I, I don't see how this could breed any anything fully functional. He says here, my dysfunctionality naturally caused antisocial behavior, which coupled with a lack of common sense inevitably led to trouble with authorities and then juvenile detentions. Then for worse, tried and convicted as an adult at age 15. He was sentenced to life in prison. He doesn't go in, into the crimes or the details here, but that was when he snuck into a neighbor's house and murdered a 22-month-old child. So he was paroled 17 and a half years later. He says, I believe that I had it together and would never again commit a criminal offense. However, virtually everything that could go wrong did. So, Andrew, you think he's kind of blaming and, and pointing fingers and stuff? Yeah, I feel like he's one of those people that can't take blame for what they've done. And I don't know. I, it's, it's, it's hard to tell if he's, if he's setting this up and being genuine. So let's, let's dig a little more into this. He says, a mere month and a half later, unable to make it on parole, and an emotional wreck, I obtained a handgun and jumped parole, thus showing that my having it together was at best only at the superficial level, instead of at the basic level as he believed. He says here, my crime spree lasted only another month and a half. Then it was the county jail, judicial proceedings, and the death sentence. So he doesn't go into too much detail here about why he didn't have it together and why he was an emotional wreck. And that's, I don't know. I, I find that kind of interesting. He just points to these things as being factors in his continued shitty behavior. Right. Just blame it basically on his emotions and his yeah mental so, state and being. and uh -huh. Yeah. So it's, I don't know. I don't know how I feel about that, but this is this is the time where he killed his parents. So when he's talking about his his crime spree and when it ended, he's talking about the murder of his parents. It sounds so, like he's basically saying, "I'm not a hundred percent there, therefore I'm not really at fault." I don't know. I don't know if he's if he's deflecting culpability or it's it's I don't know. So. To go on, he says, in San Quentin's condemned row, I essentially bided my time while the automatic appeal process ran its course at the conclusion of which an execution date would be set. So people who don't know, when you're sentenced to death, there's several levels of appeal, and these run automatically. And these are why, this is why death row inmates sit on death row for decades. It's because these appeals have to exhaust before they can be executed. So he says, but the latter never came to pass because the state Supreme Court surprisingly overturned this death penalty law as well. So the death penalty was overturned, it was reinstated, and then when he was on death row, the death penalty was overturned once again. So 
here he says, at the time I had mixed feelings. I hadn't per se wanted to die, but neither did I have any real desire to continue living. The prospect of spending the rest of my life in prison didn't particularly appeal to me. But then there was nothing for me outside either. So he sounded like he was in this limbo because, you know, he maybe institutionalized. He tried to get out before and he thought he was ready and he definitely was not ready. But he doesn't want to be in prison either. So, yeah, that's that's kind of interesting. He says, suffice it to say that the Supreme Court's new ruling also upset that which I'd resign myself so i decided what the heck to just take things day by day so he kind of gives in and and thinks i'll give life a go i got nothing to lose and here's where he decides to be open-minded about life so i guess this might be the beginning of his his transformation so as such i just did my time essentially existing rather than living it was sort of okay, but just that. There was a large emptiness. I knew that I hadn't, of course, been born to grow up to become a criminal and murderer. No infant is. I also knew that the typical authoritarian position of it's all your fault and you must accept total responsibility was moronic. And I increasingly understand how the various childhood factors not merely contributed to but caused how I turned out. So now we're getting into he's not blaming these things. He's he's pointing out what made him that way. So what we thought essentially was him pointing the finger is him kind of being introspective on himself and how how he came to be who he was and did what he did. He says that wasn't enough, though. Uh, There was still the big question of what kind of person he would have become had he instead been born to normal, non-sociopathic parents. See, I, I find this interesting that he refers to his parents as sociopaths. You know, that's that's his take. So as the years passed, this question became more and more intriguing to him. Resolved to try to find out by changing himself into the type of individual that he should be. So this is where he really starts picking things up. He says, I minimize swearing broke the embedded habit of saying, you know, at the end of sentences and tried to act like how I thought that I should. I'd been cheated out of growing up to be the person whom I was meant to be. And I was intent on rectifying that. So he's very, uh, he's very focused in this. And, and we'll, we'll touch on how that is one of the main things that if this is to happen, you need that. So he says, I incorporated self-hypnosis alone in the cell, lying on my back, eyes closed. I would concentrate on physically relaxing myself, beginning with my head, then face, then neck, and so forth. In doing so, I would get in touch with my body's pulsating sensations caused by my heartbeats, of course, and associate them with a relaxation. After having worked my way down to my feet, I'd first wallow in the relaxing pulsations of my entire body and that would transform them into waves coming from head to feet repeatedly with that comfortability achieved. I'd mentally count backwards from 10 to zero, telling myself that when I reach zero, I would be in a hypnotic state. In practice, I'd visualize the number 10, actually seeing it with my mind's eye 
and experience a head-to-toe wave of relaxing pulsations before. Okay, so he's really into, essentially, this is meditation. This was a big thing for him to keep him calm and focused. So he he says, uh, when I did the induction properly, I always attained a hypnotic state at zero. Only when impatient, I tried to hurry the process along by not fully visualizing the numbers and or by not fully sensing the waves of relaxing pulsations, did I not attain the hypnotic state at zero. This requiring me to repeat the induction process, but this time unhurriedly. So once he's in this quote-unquote hypnosis, he was free to do whatever, utilizing guided imagery. For example, he says here, I might see myself in a prison unit classification committee, remaining calm, composed, and articulate while being condescendingly and thus disrespectfully spoken to by self-important prison officials. Doing this twice a day, morning and evening, for several weeks would then enable me, if I made a genuine effort, to actually be calm, composed, and articulate at my next UCC hearing. He says here, I would also, at the end of each session, he says here, I would also, at the end of each session, pretty much do a post-hypnotic suggestion in the form of a positive affirmation. When dealing with arrogant prison staff, I will remain calm and composed and articulate, never a negative affirmation such as I will no longer, I will cease, I will stop, I will quit. So this is a mechanism he used, and it was very effective, but not a cure-all. He says here, I still lacked at the basic level positive self-esteem. For that, he says, I came up with the technique of while in my pulsating state of self-hypnosis, first creating the feeling and emotion of love by envisioning a puppy or a kitten. And then once the emotion was firmly established, transferring it to myself via my relaxed pulsations, the sensation was pure bliss. I would luxury in it, wallow in it. Afterwards, you could have backhanded me without getting me upset. I would become that mellowed out. But as good as that was, it didn't still basic level positive self-esteem. For that, I eventually figured out that I'd have to become, have to transform myself into the type of man whom I could fundamentally respect. A decent guy of good character who do the right thing primarily because it's the right thing to do and so on. So right now we're about 11 pages into this. This is 16 pages. So he says here, while I sporadically worked on that utilizing method acting, (laughs) acting as a decent guy of good character, doing what I thought was the right thing to do until eventually becoming the person he was acting as. As such, he can now look in the mirror and have fundamental respect for the person he was seeing. Initially, He says here, I was content with that, thinking that I'd finally become the person whom I was meant to be, but still something was lacking. I didn't know what it was, but the sense persisted nagging at the back of my mind. Eventually, I hit upon it. My basic level self-esteem and self-respect had brought an increased regard and respect for other people, but not only was it it high enough i was still seeing people from a subjective perspective so he says here take an average working joe married with kids his children see him primarily as their dad his wife see him primarily as her husband his employer sees him primarily as an employee 
His parents see him primarily as their son. His buddies see him primarily as their friend and so on. In other words, those in his personal world see him primarily from the standpoint of their own personal interest in him and no one sees him primarily as himself a unique individual who among many other things is a husband father son employer friend etc and perhaps golfer dog owner sports enthusiast soda drinker fisherman car driver etc etc not only that but in addition to primarily seeing him him from the standpoint of their own subjective perspective other people automatically judge him accordingly. For example, if while driving to work, he cuts off another driver, that other driver might well see him as a jerk and thus judge him negative, i.e. being of negative worth. On the other hand, a dog lover, stranger who notices him walking his dog would see him in that narrow context and thus judge him positively uh, of being positive worth. Narrow-minded, even small-minded, yeah, but it's universally done and on a personal basis, impossible to completely quit doing. It's just human nature, and it is what it is. I found that really interesting, him talking about that. I mean, he's not wrong. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I would agree with that. Yeah, so he says, recognizing that, I nonetheless resolved to personally stop doing it, except on a superficial level. Utilizing self-hypnosis, I began seeing other people as having intrinsic important worth and as being first and foremost an individual a unique individual so this stuff essentially is how he was able to change himself so he was able to characterize people and turn people when people talk about psychopaths they talk about they see other people as objects and unimportant and i would fully agree with that would you Right, yeah. Not only that, but having no feelings toward others, whether it be intimidation or fear and or striking, I guess, sadness or yeah, anything so, in somebody. Like, just the, just the mere fact of, you know, dehumanizing somebody else and whether somebody's begging you or crying or you yeah, just don't matter. care, you just bypass that emotion and just continue on with what you're doing. Right. So within this... He turned people into people from being objects. He murdered a, a baby and just wanted to see what it felt like because, you know, that baby's life had no importance to him whatsoever. That was just an object for him to kill. He wanted to see how he felt about it. So he says he had to turn people into people, basically. He had to change a lot of things about himself, calm himself, which is interesting because he's naturally hyperactive. So he does all this. And all of this completes his transformation into a calm, empathetic person, uh, someone of, of character that he finds valuable. So what do you think, Andrew? you think he's full of shit? Honestly, it's hard to tell. On one yeah. hand, I would say, well, the first murder did happen when he was 15. But on the other hand, I would say he did reoffend in 1975. Yeah, I don't think at, he personally should at, ever be let out, but... But in regards to him becoming a recovering psychopath, you could say, I don't know. I mean, do you think do you think it's possible for him to to feel empathy and to feel? I feel like it's possible remorse. for him to have relationships and meaning in life, in a sense, and I think the most develop develop be able to develop feelings. 
I think I think a lot of psychopaths can do that, and they're capable of that be, because it it serves their own interests. Right, but I I feel like he he could be more. I mean, from from what I've heard and not only read about him, I feel like he could be. I don't know. I mean, you can never tell when dealing with a psychopath, but right. So now now that we've heard him talk about his transformation and people may be you know taking that by itself some people might buy it some people might not so let's look into some science a little bit so in the oxford academic journal of neurology there's an article called reduced spontaneous but relatively normal deliberate vicarious representations in psychopathy did you get that andrew yeah no cool (laughs) so Neuroscientists conducted an experiment, and the results explain how a psychopath can be both callous and charming. Uh, The scientific research showed that when psychopaths are instructed to feel empathy, their mirror neurons get to work. Without the instruction, though, without the instruction to feel for another person, their brain activity in that same area is reduced, and and that's the area that triggers their, their sense of pain. So... They essentially notice that they're, when they're instructed, they can feel empathetic pain, or at least their brain shows that area working. This goes to show that mirror neurons are in working order, and essentially they keep their empathetic switch off, so to speak. So they have the capability to empathize, they just don't access it, which is contrary to the idea that they are incapable of empathy. Uh, the capabilities there. So they found that psychopaths do indeed have an accessible, an accessible capability for empathy in, in terms of their, their brain function and what their brains are showing them. So the University of California also did some research with mirror neurons where they asked subjects to observe and respond to emotional cues. They were shown photos of people expressing emotions, and first they were asked to just look at the images. Then they were asked to mimic them. Essentially, the mirror neurons connect the areas in the brain that are responsible for action with the areas that are responsible for emotion. Autistic patients who were tested with these findings were found to have a deficit in mirror neurons in their MRI. So the psychopaths have functioning mirror neuron activity at times. So based on these researches, there's a valid argument here backed by research that psychopaths can feel empathy which is in stark contrast to the long-held belief that they completely are incapable, cannot feel empathy, which I found is interesting. And I found that that's somewhat coincides with John Miller, being that John Miller did this with great effort and great focus. And that seems to be what pushes a psychopath's brain to function those areas that he's now saying that he can tap into and he can feel that. So, so with effort, psychopaths can empathize. This is pretty accurate to John Miller's account of things. When I read it, I found it very intriguing and wondered if there was some science to back up what he's saying. And evidently there is, I should say that this is directed at psychopathy alone, but with the most, most of the violent psychopaths that we've dealt with, there's various other things at play that make the task of empathizing more difficult than just exhibiting effort. So I think certain psychopaths are candidates for retraining their brain. And if they exercise conscious effort, 
they can be more emotionally functional. And I think within that, the other characteristics of psychopathy would alleviate on their own as, as long as certain behaviors aren't compulsive and there's nothing else uh, biologically obstructing them from dealing directly with their psychopathological thinking. However, one can reasonably believe that Miller hasn't genuinely learned to feel empathy, but has successfully learned to mimic it. And it's hard to say without an MRI study of Miller himself. So in conclusion, there, there's no conclusion. There's a few plausible interpretations of what happens in the brain of a psychopath. So I think by listening to this, it's up to the listeners to dictate if they feel this is genuine or not. And I, I mean, there's not really a, a right or wrong answer here. There's, there's a lot of science and, and not a lot of conclusions. So... I just found it interesting, and I found Miller's case to be a good example of, of bringing this topic up. I mean, it's 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 pretty cookie-cutter, and a lot of people freely dismiss it, and, and, you know, they have the whole psychopaths, you know, can't feel empathy, and, and they have all that. I thought this was interesting to dig a little bit into. Right, and I will be reaching out to John Miller and hope that we can get him to do a podcast with him so we can ask him a lot of these questions and get firsthand experience and firsthand thoughts and knowledge from the mind of a psychopath on this topic, which would be very interesting and fascinating. Or former psychopath. I mean, who knows at this or point? Or former you know? psychopath, if, if that theory is Yeah, real. I mean, it's, it's, it's very, very interesting. And, and I did consult, before I got into the, the scientific part of it, I, I did consult a person who is a undergrad with honors in neuroscience. And I also spoke to a friend of mine who is a, a PhD in clinical psychology. And, and they said that overall, you know, what we have to say as far as presenting this stuff is, is pretty accurate. So yeah, we'll, we'll just leave it up to the listeners and it's open for interpretation. So, uh, so I think that's going to wrap up our first episode. That was our episode on John Miller. Um, now you have kind of an idea if you've never heard us before, uh, what we talk about. If you like what you hear and you want to go more in depth and hear way more intense uh, content, head over to patreon.com slash criminal perspective and uh, check out our classified episodes over there. So, uh, yeah, uh, we hope that you stick with us and uh, check out our other episodes. We're going to be releasing some older ones and then we're going to be putting out some some great new stuff. So uh, thank you for uh, listening to us and we'll see you again soon.